Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each Monday morning we join the Liquid Markets Group's market meeting to get the latest update across all traded markets. Good morning and welcome to Monday the 19th of October. Whilst we're only a fortnight out from the US elections, we finally have some positive news out of Victoria with Daniel Andrews relaxing the strict lockdown measures over the weekend. These should bring welcome economic relief following last week's labour force data falls. The renewed wave of Northern Hemisphere infections will also see the global community hit 40 million cases of confirmed COVID-19, having now endured a sobering 1.1 million deaths. And with many governments around the world pinning their deficit hopes on a vaccine, we learnt last week that the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 trial has been paused due to an unexplained illness. To explain the implications for our listed financial markets, I'm now going to be joined by our head of currency, Stuart Simmons. Stuart, welcome. Has the renewed infections of COVID-19 in the Northern Hemisphere that I just mentioned had an impact across the financial markets last week? Yeah, hi, Craig. Uh, Arguably, investors have largely suppressed the reaction to the surge in new infections, uh, having faith in fiscal and monetary policy to underpin markets and favouring the forward-looking approach, which entails a world which has a vaccine and the pandemic largely under control. Uh, Essentially, investors have learned to live with it in the background, but there were signs from last week's price action in risk assets that we may have reached an inflection point in suppression of that reaction. So if the investors are resisting the COVID surge, um, what are the three main risks now that you're watching for, Stuart, over the coming months? Top of the list there is, is undoubtedly an increasing sensitivity to the pandemic surge as leaders in governments lose patience uh, and reimpose mobility restrictions, curfews, and localised lockdowns. Uh, And that's certainly what we're seeing throughout much of Europe at the moment. Um, So watch for a new surge in associated hospitalisations and deaths, uh, and investors are going to be sensitive to evidence of a more material economic impact um, from those restrictions. Secondly, the US elections are clear event risk, uh, but the outcome that will weigh most on investors is the one that generates greater uncertainty rather than an outcome that's clearly favouring one candidate over another. Uh, a narrowing in polls over the next couple of weeks uh, will bring up the threat of a contested result, and that's probably the one that would uh, most likely weigh on risk assets. Uh, and, and investors there will also be sensitive to which party gains controls in the ha- control in the House and Senate uh, in particular to gauge the amount of resistance to poli- policy initiatives going forward, particularly in reference to additional fiscal stimulus. And thirdly there, I think negotiations between the UK and the EU represent another clear tower risk for investors, albeit one which is more localised. Uh, and I think just to add a couple of bonus risks, Craig, uh, there's the the threat that economic momentum may wane as some of the stimulus programs get tapered or rolled off, and also the possibility, uh, albeit probably a lower probability, of a major setback in those leading vaccine programs. Thanks, Joe, for the bonus round there. What's When you look at those three or four or five risk areas you just commented on, Given that the US election is coming up, is that the one area of the current risks on the table that the liquid markets are most envisaging and having an impact? 
As far as distinct risks, I'd say yes, but in terms of those risks which are going to have a more durable effect on markets and sentiment, I would think the pandemic is the one that investors should be most focused on. And there's going to be a lot of noise that takes place with the election that could just act as a distraction for investors um, rather than providing more of a signal. And sure, just for the institutional investors, do those current market conditions you just commented on, do they demand any new considerations for hedging programs, as an example? I'd say that the primary consideration for investors when looking at their hedging programs is when you consider the global developed market cash rates are anchored at or near the lower bounds, uh, you probably want to consider how that currency risk, uh, sorry, currency mix of the portfolio can help achieve the diversification objectives. Uh, and there's more, you know, whether there's more that can be done through analysing the composition of that foreign currency mix, given that some of those old objectives or, or traditional objectives around yield and carry, they're a lot more suppressed at the moment because it's just not there in a material way, at least in developed markets. Thank you, Stuart Simmons, for that macro and risk update. Uh, you're listening to Craig Valenzuela, and this is QIC's Market Moments podcast. Beverly, can I w- please welcome you to the QPod? Uh, Beverly, you are our Director of Fixed Income Absolute Returns. On Friday's Take 10 podcast, our economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, took us through the economic implications of the RBA's latest update through low speech. What was the reaction from the fixed income markets? Yeah, hi, Craig. Um, look, it was it was quite a big reaction in fixed income markets. There was a lot of expectation heading into that low speech on Thursday morning. So, um, you know, he had a lot to deliver to surprise markets, um, but, but there was a big reaction. And um, 10-year yields in Australia actually were eight basis points lower on the day. And that was a really big outperformance relative to global markets on that particular day. And since then, the rally has continued. So the market's taken a really big signal from that speech uh, late last week. Um, And so we've got Aussie 10-year yields now sitting at 73 basis points. That's around a six-month low. So definitely a strong performance in Aussie fixed income since that speech on Thursday. And Bev, there's also been a shift in the RBA's interest rate policy, particularly around those inflation bans. So how important is the new direction of the RBA policy for markets? Yeah, look, you're right. And I, I think, you know, in, in the midst of the fireworks of that speech and, and certainly some of the elements that the bond market um, grabbed onto, um, there was a little bit um, lost in, in terms of the importance of some of the underlying comments that were made in that speech. And one of those, as you correctly point out, was around, you know, the RBA's um, stance on inflation. And so there was quite a meaningful change in the language there, where previously um, the RBA has said that, um, you know, they're going to keep rates on hold and policy easing until inflation is sustainably back within its 2 to 3% band. Um, what they've said now is that the board won't be increasing the cash rate until actual inflation is sustainably within the band. So, you know, that's quite a big shift. Um, and, you know, it's it's not dissimilar to um, what we saw from the Fed a couple of months ago. It's obviously explicit um, as an average inflation framework, um, but it is very consistent with what we said at the time then that what, you know, what the Fed had delivered was probably just the first of what we might see from several um, other central banks. And now we've just seen that from the RBA. So it's an important message, an important change to historical central bank behaviour, where it was always the forecasts 
um, that determined what the policy response would be at any point in time. But now they're saying the forecasts don't matter. Uh, inflation actually has to be um, in the band and sustainably be with, within the band um, before they'll do anything. So, you know, that's quite a dovish signal. Inflation markets loved it. Um, Aussie BEI is up around five basis points just in the last couple of se sessions on the back of that. Yeah, very interesting. Now, if that wasn't sort of picked up on by the markets, what are the areas of the RBA's latest guidance, Beverly, that caught the market's eye? So the one that really grabbed the market's attention was a specific reference to Australian 10-year bond yields um, and the fact that 10-year bond yields in Australia um, were higher than almost anywhere else in the world. So that's quite a specific reference to the 10-year point, um, which they haven't um, made previously. All previous references have typically been, you know, in reference to their yield curve control target around the three-year point. Um, and an and implication of that um, and discussion within the speech um, was around potential um, long-dated asset purchase um, buying starting again and specifically in the five to ten year part of the curve. So, you know, that was definitely new news for the market. There had been some, you know, early rumours um, swirling in the markets, you know, in the couple of weeks leading up to that, but not a lot more than just rumours. But, you know, that was definitely vindicated in that speech. And, and that's why we saw that, you know, it's probably the seven to ten year part of the curve. That's really where we saw the strong outperformance, um, you know, relative to the much longer end because, you know, implicitly they're sort of saying they'll buy out to 10-year, but probably not beyond that. And Bev, you mentioned the curve. When you look across the entire curve, are the markets giving us any indications of how many rate cuts are now pricing in? Yeah, so the market's fully priced now for a rate cut at the November RBA meeting. Um, so market's fully expecting that the cash from 25 basis points down to 10. Um, beyond that, the market has now got um, a few basis points of additional cuts beyond that. So there's sort of the terminal rate and sort of the front end strip goes down to about five basis points. So I guess the market is, despite what the RBA is saying, it's not over yet. Um, 10 basis points isn't the floor, according to the markets, and now starting to price in, you know, potentially some small probability um, that rate cuts could could go beyond that. Um, but in terms of, you know, broader market moves, we've got that Aussie 10-year um, spread to the US back down to zero now. So that's been quite a um, very, very quick little move there. It was a, a up at 20 basis points at the start of this month. So very strong outperformance of Aussie bonds. So, you know, the market's really clearly priced a lot of this um, you know, expectation in now. It's unlikely that that's going to get um, backed out anytime soon, but it certainly is setting up for, for, for quite an exciting um, Melbourne Cup um, RBA day. And you just mentioned that the markets ain't finished yet, so to speak, with regards to their views on future policy. Will And you just mentioned the Melbourne Cup. Will the Victorian economy reopening over the weekend start to ease pressure potentially, though, Bev, on that monetary policy going forward? Look, I don't think so. And in fact, um, if anything, it could do the opposite. Um, you know, one of the really interesting um, comments within that low speech was reference to the fact that you know, the RBA feels that, you know, the timing of the policy easing is actually quite important um, and easing um, into an economy that's, you know, locked down is sort of a waste of bullets, if you like. Uh, and so, you know, their comments around the fact that the effectiveness of monetary policy easing increases, um, you know, w when those restrictions are lifted sort of tells you that as the economy lift lifts and, and Melbourne comes out of lockdown, that, that they're policy easing at that point will actually have a much bigger impact.
There you go. Very interesting. Thank you, Beverly Morris, for that fixed income and rates update. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela, and this is QIC's Market Moments podcast. Good morning, Paul Nicholson, our Director of Global Absolute Return and Fixed Income Funds. Paul, last week, German bonds hit the press. What is the latest and what are the main factors or factors that drove this fall in yields, Paul? Hi, Craig. Good, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, just sort of, you know, listen to Bev there talking about terminal rates. You know, the euro zone um, continues to try to find that uh, infamous terminal rate, uh, very much as you said, uh, and a complete reversal from the week before where we saw steeper curves, we saw higher rates, we saw a complete reversal of that um, and last week. Uh, essentially coming on the back of those stricter lockdown measures that we've seen um, pretty much across Europe, but also very dovish rhetoric out of the ECB. Um, so really that's been led by the bond market, as you said, but also a little bit on the semi-core. Um, right across Europe, we're seeing um, rolling lockdowns that tend to be a little bit more um, specific from a city point of view. So, for example, in Paris and things like that. However, you know, Europe is a services-led economy. 75% of all jobs in the Eurozone are services-related. So, a, whenever we get you know, we, we've had this spike in, in infection rates, um, you know, lesser on, on the sort of mortality rate, but essentially, um, you know, a broader uh, lockdown, move free movement has, has really seen markets react a little bit like that. And so instead of a June hike uh, next year, the ECB's um, expectations of a hike has actually been increased up until uh, November, December this year. Um, so quite substantial there in terms of expectations of, of, of what we're going to see. And that's really come right across the curve, right across the bone curve. And we've actually seen uh, quite a strong rally of about 12 to, to, to about two, two, nine to 12 basis points across the curve. And, and really outperforming. are performing. And Paul, in addition to those German yields being at seven month lows, we've also had Brexit filing out for the front pages with news of a possible trade deal collapse. So last time we spoke was all about fisheries, of course. What's driving it now? Yeah, you, you, it's always my, my, my favorite topic. Um, look, as we expected, they're, they've kicked the can down the road a little bit into November. Um, I think we're likely to see the European Parliament will sit on 23rd to 26th of November, so we potentially will need to see uh, a vote by then. However, the European Parliament will go right through until mid-December, and just coincidentally, we actually have um, a European Council summit uh, on the December the 11th. So it's very likely we're going to try to see this cliff edge. Uh, carry on, go on. Uh, Lagarde specifically pointed this out uh, in the in her in her conversation. It was a forum at the weekend with um, uh, the Japanese central bank, the Chinese, and the British central bank, and um, basically that we should be avoiding such cliff cliff edges. But um, look, I think this is destined to be one. Uh, even this morning, as recently as an hour ago, we are hearing some uh, easing of the language between the two parties. And, and this is 
it really goes to what we've always talked about, Craig, where we, we felt a lot of this is posturing, a lot of it is uh, horse trading and a bit of uh, playing politics with it. And, and the big key is, of course, that services sector side. It's not really as much about the fishing. It's not about agriculture. It's really about the financial passport. And, and, and that's unresolved. And I suspect that will be kicked into the long grass into next year at some point. And Paul, if it is all around posturing, then is there anything in this for institutional investors right now? Are there long-term financial considerations that institutional investors should be aware of? Uh, absolutely. You know, it, there's the one thing that we're always concerned about. You know, and just to get through on a few extra risks there this morning, um, it, it's really the you know policy mistake. You know, the, the reality is politics are not always rational. And, and, you know, we're talking it from a, a very much economic or, or rational market point of view. Um, but, you know, nationalism is, is not particularly rational. And that would always concern us that, you know, things like Brexit that's going on. There is quite a hard deadline at the end of the year in terms of the, um, the, the relationship going forward. So that would need addressed. Uh, by certainly by the summit of December the 11th, I would have thought. And so you, you wouldn't want to go down the road and anything that's, that remains uncertain, anything that remains uh, potential to policy mistake, it's really, really going to be a big concern for us. Excellent, Paul. Let's swap Europe now for the US where Wall Street's biggest banks have just started report, or have just reported rather their earnings. What were the two or three key announcements that caught our attention? In summary, if you cast your mind back to the last two quarters, the major banks have put huge provisioning uh, in place. So essentially, they've taken a lot of the earnings out of the income statement onto their balance sheet just in case. So when things go wrong, the, the loan's sour, they'll need to have these reserves that they can then release into the income statement and to smooth that earnings profile just in case this pandemic gets worse. Um, we, we saw a huge um, reserve requirements uh, being being put out um, in the last uh, in the last in the last few months, um, and essentially that's come uh, that that has been as expected. Now, one thing from the earnings point of view, net interest margins with lower rates, flatter curves, and net interest income has been challenging. So the traditional banking model has continued to be challenged. That would be as expected. Um, however, we have seen some uh, quality earnings come from capital markets. JP Morgan, for example, the broad brush of their earnings stream just really showed its quality uh, through this quarter. And also, what we're also seeing is, is a reduction in the provisioning. So they're getting less concerned. They're becoming more comfortable with the asset quality that they have underlying. And even though we're not seeing any strong loan growth or any loan growth really generally at all, so the demand for loans is very, 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 very small, the, the deposits have been phenomenal. So the average deposit increase in, in JP Morgan, for example, um, uh, has been in this year alone has been over 300 billion US dollars. Now, that's new deposits to JP Morgan. If that had been its own separate entity, that would already be a top 20 US bank, just to give you the scale, the sheer liquidity that, that these banks are, are seeing at the moment. And Paul, when you look ahead, you mentioned the equity markets before looking ahead, but when you look ahead at that bank reporting, was there anything in there that could provide us some kind of forecast with regards to the economic conditions ahead? Yeah, so a bit of a mixed bag actually on that. You know, if you looked at um, 
City and JP, they were very downbeat. Um, I think JP was perhaps a little bit more positive on that, whereas the Bank of America uh, and Morgan's were actually were actually quite, you know, a bit more constructive on, on the market. But the one thing that um, encapsulates all of their outlook is that no matter who takes the White House, no matter what the makeup is of Capitol Hill, the continuation of monetary policy stimulus and the continuation of having to spend money on the fiscal side is just going to be there and no matter what happens we're going to have to see more um and of course we don't know when the timing is whether it's before the election or after the election but the one thing's for sure we're going to have to continue to see this economy kept on life support for the foreseeable Thanks, Paul. Stuart, I might just quickly bring you into the podcast here because there's been some reporting of some currency market impact from that US bank reporting. What's your take on that? Uh, you know, I'd probably say it's a bit exaggerated, to be honest, because um, it was those defensive currencies which actually performed best throughout the week. And, and some of those more pro-cyclical currencies uh, underperformed. Uh, the positive news from earnings was really subordinated to some of those other risks that we're fully aware of the surge in the pandemic, the setback in the vaccine trial, and uh, and those stalled stimulus negotiations. So I wouldn't say there was much of a clear impact from the earnings themselves. Thanks, Stuart. And thank you, Paul Nicholson, for that update on Europe and the US. Thank you to the whole of the Liquid Markets Group for that financial markets update. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod Market Moments, and have a super week.